Elon Musk is in the news. You know who he is. He's now the richest man in the world, having surpassed Mr. Bezos of Amazon. Elon Musk is the owner, most famously, of Tesla, the most successful electrical automobile to date, although I do think ultimately electric automobiles will fail and fall by the wayside to hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, but that's beside the point. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another NPO podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe to the show. You can do so in one of three ways, either in your relevant app store, be it the iTunes app store or the Google Play store, for you Android users, and search for the NPO podcast, or download the Podbean app and subscribe that way. Podbean is our hosting service. It's a free app. It's free to subscribe no matter how you do so. And by subscribing, you will be assured of never missing a thing. And that's the object of the game, to get information that you don't get other places. We ask that you please leave us a review. Uh, Even if it's one or two lines, it will assist the show in being discovered more readily when people search those respective app stores and will allow the show to grow. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, National Preview Online, forward slash, I should say, facebook.com forward slash National Preview Online. And if you'd like to give me some input or things you would like me to cover, by all means, please feel free to email me directly at nationalpreviewonline at gmail.com. That's nationalpreviewonline at gmail.com. So, on to Mr. Musk. Elon Musk finds himself in the news of late for a few reasons. Now, this was unreported by me. Uh, It didn't get a lot of play. But back in the middle of last month, Donald Trump Jr., of all people, prevailed upon Elon Musk to build a social media network. Now, the reason why he did that is Mr. Musk had been quite critical of what Um, big tech or West tech, as he called it, had done to Americans. Uh, Even though he hasn't come out directly and said anything about being for or against it, he did say that a lot of people will be super unhappy with what has unfolded. In a reply to a tweet, Musk wrote, a lot of people are going to be super unhappy with West Coast high tech as the de facto arbiter of free speech. He also pointed out that it is important to make the distinction between banning hate speech and banning speech that big tech simply hates. And there is a difference. It is a distinction. So uh, we're going to see how this uh, plays out. If anyone could build it, uh, Elon Musk seems certainly positioned to do so. He's the richest man in the world. He probably wouldn't need a very great deal of uh, investment capital, probably could front it all on his own. And if he did need to invest, I'm sure there are people who would. So uh, he's actually gone off Twitter for a while, so he's probably very dissatisfied with what's going on. So things get very interesting. But there's another reason why I brought up Mr. Musk. He's in the news for another reason. It has now been reported that the Department of Justice is investigating SpaceX, that's Elon Musk's private aerospace program, for allegedly uh, exercising preference for hiring U.S. citizens. Now, quite frankly, I don't think there's anything wrong with hiring U.S. citizens, but apparently the Department of Justice does. 
And they're doing this based on the report of one Fabian Hutter, a lawful American resident who said SpaceX asked him about his citizenship status after he applied for a job with the company. Quote, within five seconds, I knew this wasn't a real interview. And here's some pull quotes or some information from this article uh, in the Washington Examiner. Hutter claimed that the interview he was granted was a formality, with the company already deciding it was not going to hire him based on his citizenship. He then filed a complaint with the DOJ's Immigrant and Employee Rights Section, which is responsible for enforcing anti-discrimination provisions in the Immigration and Nationality Act. The company was also informed by the DOJ that an investigation was underway and issued subpoenas requesting documentation, quote, related to how the company hires. Now, the article goes on to say that SpaceX had just simply refused to comply with this subpoena. They sent them over some I-9 form spreadsheets that contain employee information but does not provide any supporting documentation. They said, quote, Hutter gave an unimpressive screening interview and SpaceX rejected his application at that point. In fact, as of July 1st, 2020, SpaceX had rejected every candidate it gave a technical screening interview to and had hired no one for the position. That's what the company said in response to the allegations. SpaceX acknowledged that a SpaceX recruiter asked Hutter to confirm his citizenship and immigration status, reiterating what was in the job posting, namely that federal regulations impose restrictions on SpaceX's employment of non-U.S. persons. Hutter responded by again representing that he was authorized to work in the United States, and there was no further discussion of his citizenship or immigration status, SpaceX said in the filing. Now, according to this article, SpaceX can hire non-U.S. citizens who have a legal um, permanent residency under current law, uh, which only allows U.S. citizens or green uh, green card holders to have access to digital items on the U.S. munitions list. This is a security issue after all. Apparently, this this is a great quote from SpaceX, apparently Hutter could not conceive of being rejected for legitimate reasons and so ascribed SpaceX's decision to discriminatory animus based on his citizenship, despite the fact that SpaceX selected him for an interview from among hundreds of applicants, knowing he was not a U.S. citizen. Now, that's interesting, that point, that last point, that they cannot conceive of being rejected for legitimate reasons. Doesn't it sound a little bit like the left? Whenever of a, a member of a protected class uh, is rejected for something, it just simply has to be because of white supremacy, racism, prejudice, or some other sort of underlying animus. It can't just be because... The person wasn't qualified. You know what? You can't dislike a person, I guess, unless they're a non-protected person. If you dislike a white male, no one ever says you disliked him because he was a white male. You just disliked him because you dislike him. But if I go to dislike someone because I don't like what he says or what he does or how he conducts himself uh, or his political leanings or what he stands for, the way he treats his wife or any host of reasons, 
Uh, I'm forbidden from doing that if he's a member of a protected class. None of those things matter. It must be because he's a member of a protected class. He's a minority or whatever. So I found it very appealing that SpaceX responded in this way. We'll have to follow this and see what comes of it. But those are just a couple of things I wanted to lead off with. Now, what's in the big news? Well, the big news, of course, is that um, the impeachment, this incredibly ridiculous waste of time, uh, is going to begin next week in the United States Senate. Now, we already told you last week that in advance of this, Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky got all of the senators on the record and 45 of the 50 Republicans in the chamber said they felt the impeachment was unconstitutional. And we can deduce from this vote, therefore, that if the impeachment goes forward, and it looks like it will, 45 of the 50 Republican senators will vote to acquit President Trump. They will not vote to convict him, which means you have a vote at best of 45 against 55. Unfortunately, for the Democrats, you need 67 votes to convict a president and impeach in an impeachment proceeding. It's certainly a foregone conclusion. They will not get that. And absent a conviction on impeachment, they can't get a sanction against him to prevent him from running again, which is all what this is about. It's not about anything else. The evidence is mounting daily uh, that this assault on uh, or this invasion of the Capitol on January 6th was planned weeks in advance. And that fact alone uh, undermines the argument that it all was promulgated by something Trump said on the day in question. In point of fact, the assault actually began on the day in question before Trump had even begun his speech and certainly before he concluded his speech. So, uh, this is really a fool's errand, but there, Democrats give them credit. They don't give up. They're shameless. They're not fearless. They're shameless. I've often heard it when you deal with the Department of Justice and the federal government, the lawyers, that they're fearless when they present evidence. No, they're not fearless. They're not fearless. All the sticks are on their side of the table. When you, when you present evidence or you go forth with a confrontation when you know that all the bullets are on your side and your opponent is almost unarmed. That's not fearlessness when you know something is, is illegal like that or like shooting fish in a barrel. It's shameless. And the Democrats have always been shameless. And the latest act of shamelessness in their uh, benighted attempt to run an unconstitutional impeachment is that they've sent a request for Donald Trump himself to testify at his impeachment. Now, you'll notice that uh, Bill Clinton did not testify as his, at his impeachment trial. Um, similarly, Donald Trump did not testify at his first impeachment trial. And I must confess, I did not research to see if Andrew Johnson, the only other president to be impeached, testified at his trial. He was acquitted, though. So no president has successfully been convicted during an impeachment trial. That we do know. But apparently the impeachment managers, led by Representative Jamie Raskin, according to this article in the Epic Times, sent a letter to Trump calling on him to testify at his second impeachment trial and said that if he does not, they would use it against him during the event, sort of a negative in, uh, inference, a similar tactic and argument they used during the first impeachment trial. They answered him, two days ago, you filed an answer in which you denied many factual allegations set forth in the article of impeachment. You have thus attempted to put critical facts at issue, notwithstanding the clear and overwhelming evidence of your constitutional offense. 
Raskin wrote to Trump. I write to invite you to provide testimony under oath, either before or during the Senate impeachment trial concerning your conduct on January 6th. Now, notice how this is framed. You have made statements, you have denied uh, in your answer many of the allegations. Therefore, since you're denying them, you're putting facts in ev- in, that, are, uh, that are at issue in dispute, and therefore you have to uh, clarify this. No, he does not. In this country, everyone has a presumption of innocence. If the Democrats believe that these facts are not in dispute, it is incumbent upon them to prove them. It is not incumbent upon President Trump to unprove them or to disprove them. They have to prove them, and they can't. It's one of the reasons why people like George Stephanopoulos, that sycophant who calls himself a journalist, I don't know how he even has the title, he's a member of the Clinton team, kept imploring upon Rambo, just say it, just say it, there was no fraud. They, they usually do these things when they know they can't prove their point. They want you to admit the point so they can put it at rest. And that's what they're trying to do here. Uh, Trump's lawyer, though, David Schoen, said in his response uh, that Ruskin was attempting a, a PR stunt by sending the letter to the former president. There's no such thing as a negative uh, inference in this unconstitutional proceeding. Your letter only confirms what is known to everyone. You cannot prove your allegations against the 45th president of the United States, who is now a private citizen. In suggesting that Trump will not attend the trial to testify, Schoen argued that Raskin's use of our Constitution to bring a purported impeachment proceeding is much too serious to try to play these games. And that's what you have here. Jason Miller, uh, the former spokesperson for uh, Trump, was um, on Newsmax uh, the other day and said that he did not expect him to testify. He said if he did, though, the former president would knock this thing out in about 15 minutes. Now, I don't think Trump will testify. He doesn't have to testify. And as I said, the evidence is growing uh, daily that this thing was planned weeks in advance. So the Democrats are engaged in a fool's errand, but that never stopped them before. So why should it stop them now? Now, the other day, I touched on a subject. I spoke a little bit about it. I'm going to speak a little bit more about it today. That affects me personally, given that I have a son of school age. And that is the shameless way the teachers union in this country, in many states, not the entire country, but in many states, have abandoned our children by doing this remote learning. Nowhere is this more evident than in the city of New York, where they started off the year with a choice of fully remote learning or blended learning. So we have blended learning. That meant they went to school a few days a week and they did remote a few days a week. I don't know why they couldn't go fully, but they didn't want to. It wasn't because the kids didn't want to. It was because the teachers didn't want to. So what did they do? Mike Mulgrew, the New York City head of the local, uh, came up with an arbitrary number because the mayor uh, was deathly afraid of a strike. So he said, if we have an infection rate above 3%, we want to be able to pull the plug. And beyond that, they set these ridiculous parameters. Uh, Having to go to school earlier this year for an unrelated matter, I happened to 
be able to ask the principal about how this runs and why they're doing this. And he said, well, if we have one child infected with COVID, uh, we don't have to close the school. Um, if we have two children affected with COVID and they're in the same class, we don't have to close the school. But if we have two children and they're in separate classes, we have to close the entire school, which seems a little bit ridiculous, but that's what they're doing. So after I looked this over and I spoke to some other friends of mine who were New York City public school teachers, it became readily apparent to me that these numbers were not based on science. They were based on the fact that there was a greater likelihood that these numbers would be easily attained at some point in the early portion of the school year, and that this would afford the teachers union the opportunity uh, to deny uh, responsibility for coming to work and insist on remote classes because they never wanted to come back to begin with. Now, this was something that the teachers union knew all along. Last spring, you might have been able to forgive this um, remote learning because this situation was sort of thrust upon us. Not everybody knew everything about it. We were kind of feeling our way through. And so I could understand uh, that it might have been prudent to go to remote learning at that point uh, since we didn't know. It's better to err on the side of caution. But now we do know. We've learned more and more about it over the course of the summer. And the teachers had to know that they didn't want to go back to work, that they wanted to do everything remote. But did they engage in any effort over the course of the summer to have a conference, a meeting, a virtual meeting to discuss how they were going to go forward? No, I have it on very good authority from public school teachers that they did not. They just knew they were going to run this gambit. And our children are suffering for it. They're behind. A lot of children who don't have very, very involved parents don't get involved on the remote learning. They're falling further and further behind, uh, further and further behind. A child that misses a full year like this may be irreparably damaged. And I'm giving serious consideration to removing my son from the public school. Even if it breaks me financially, I'll find a way to put him into private school because I'm not going to have his future uh, compromised because his education has been compromised. And that's what's happening. But how could this be different if a different person was in office? Well, as I explained, there is a thing in New York known as the Taylor Law, the Great Taylor Law. Now, under the Taylor Law, certain unions, public unions, are allowed to do certain things. They're allowed to organize. They're allowed to have unions, for lack of a better word, or at least a uh, collective bargaining agent. We, you know, the, in certain unions like the New York City uh, Patrolmen's Benevolent Association is not really considered a union. It's it's considered a union by the membership, but legally it's it's set up as a collective bargaining agent. So you really can't have a union. But things like police officers, firemen, sanitation workers, hospital workers, teachers. One thing they're not allowed to do is strike. They're not allowed to participate in the strike, not allowed to promote a strike. It's against the law, known as the Taylor Law. And among other things, in terms of providing administrative guidance as to how allegations of this type are investigated, sanctioned, ruled on, it provides for sanctions, punishment for people uh, who engage in a strike. So I'm going to read a few things for you from Section 210 of the Taylor Law, 
where it talks about prohibition of strikes. So let me read for you. Item one. No public employee or employee organization shall engage in a strike. And no public employee or employee organization shall cause, instigate, encourage, or condone a strike. And by the way, just so you know, earlier in the law, uh, other certain definitions, slowdowns can also be considered a form of strike that are subject to sanction. Okay? And even if you don't want to say it's a strike, it's something that can also be financially sanctioned. And there's no question in my mind that if you're not going to work, if you're not going to school and teaching the kids, that the rate of education, the educational process has been sharply curbed and slowed down. This is not doing the job. By virtue of staying home, they're not doing the job they've been collectively bargained to do. Two, violations and penalties presumption. Prohibition against consent to strike, determination, notice, probation, payroll deductions, objections, and restoration. 2A, violations and penalties. A public employee shall violate this subdivision by engaging in a strike or violating paragraph C of this subdivision, which we'll get to in a second, and shall be liable as provided in this subdivision pursuant to the procedures contained herein. In addition, any public employee who violates subdivision one of this section may be subject to removal or other disciplinary action provided by law for misconduct. B, a presumption under the law. For purpose of this subdivision, an employee who is absent from work without permission, who abstains wholly or in part from the full performance of his duties in his normal manner without permission, on the date or dates when a strike occurs, shall be presumed to have engaged in such a strike on such a date or dates. That means, ladies and gentlemen, that if I, the boss, the mayor of the city of New York, says you will return to work and you insist on doing it remotely from home, you have abstained wholly or in part from the full performance of your duty in the normal manner without permission. C. Prohibition against consent to strike. No person exercising on behalf of any public employer, any authority, supervision, or direction over any public employee shall have the power to authorize, approve, condone, or consent to a strike or the engaging in a strike by one or more public employees and such person shall not authorize, approve, condone, or consent to such strike or engagement. What does that tell you? No person exercising on behalf of any public employee, any authority, supervision, or direction. That tells you the union can't order and or sanction the strike. And the principals and the administrative staff of the Department of Education cannot do so either. So this law has teeth. There is no reason why your children are learning remotely. Now, if you don't want to go back to school... Well, that's probably something that the city can't compel you to do. And they would probably have to come up with as efficacious a remote learning platform as they could. But they still would be obligated to offer in-person learning for those children and their parents who want the kids back in school. And let's go a little further. Determination. In the event that it appears that a violation of this subdivision may have occurred, the chief executive officer of the, of, the, of the government involved shall on the basis of such investigation and affidavits as he may deem appropriate 
and in this case that would be the mayor of the city of New York, determine whether or not such a violation has occurred and the date or dates of such violation. If the chief executive officer determines that such violation has occurred, he shall further determine on the basis of such further investigation and affidavits as he may deem appropriate the names of the employees. Now, that isn't hard to do. So what they're saying here is if the mayor had chutzpah, if the mayor had the courage of his convictions, he could order the New York City teachers back to work. And they, when they refused to come back to work, he could invoke this law. And now we get to my favorite section, section 210.2, subdivision F. And this is the one that usually calls everybody's anuses to pucker up. Payroll deductions, not earlier than 30, nor later than 90 days, following the date of such determination. The chief fiscal officer of the government involved, that would be the New York City controller, I would imagine, shall deduct from the compensation of each such public employee an amount equal to twice his daily rate of pay for each day or part thereof that it was determined that he or she had violated this subdivision. Such rate of pay to be computed as of the time of such violation. In computing such deduction, credit shall be allowed for amounts already withheld from such employee's compensation on account of his absence from work or other withholding of services on such day or days. In computing the aforesaid 30 to 90 day period of time following the determination of a violation pursuant to subdivision D of paragraph 2 of this section, and where the employee's annual compensation is paid over a period of time, which is less than 52 weeks, that period of time between the last day of the last payroll period of the employment term in which the violation occurred and on the first day of the first payroll period, the next succeeding employment term shall be disregarded and I counted. Just a fancy way of saying when you boil it all down, but I didn't want anybody to accuse me of not reading that little subdivision in its entirety. You strike... After we tell you to go back to work and we've determined that you have struck, you lose two days pay for every day you're out. And that was designed for a reason, ladies and gentlemen, to make it financially impossible for someone to strike, either for increased pay or for any other reason, because it would just cripple you. Because this is something that needs to be done. It's an essential service. So there's the little mystery. There's the dirty little secret that no one gave you in this whole drama. Your children did not need to be denied the ability to go to school. The only thing that's preventing your children in the city of New York and probably in other municipalities where you find yourselves similarly situated is the lack of intestinal fortitude on the part of your chief executive, your mayor, your governors, people who are supposed to discharge their duties, people who are now committing a dereliction of their duties. They have sided with labor. They have sided with their constituents. And this is all happening in primarily in democratically controlled cities and states because they are beholden to the unions. The unions give them huge amounts of donations every election year. And in return, the Democrats give them raises. 
knowing that they'll get money back from the unions. It's sort of a very, very advanced pay-for-play scheme. Close shop. You've been betrayed by your mayors and your governors if your children aren't in school. And we have certainly been betrayed here in the city of New York by Mayor de Blasio and by Il Duce, Governor Benito Cuomo, up in New York. This thing could be over tomorrow and our children could be back in school. It's only on because these two bozos don't have the intestinal fortitude to stand up to a bunch of union thugs called the United Federation of Teachers and the New York City Teachers Union, per se. I can assure you, as a student of politics and a longtime New York City resident and New York State resident, that if unions like the New York City Patrolman's Benevolent Association or the United Firefighters Association or the sanitation workers engaged in this sort of chicanery, uh, maybe not the sanitation workers, but definitely the firefighters and the police department, if they engaged, engaged in this sort of action, I can assure you that there would be no compunction on the part of the mayor or the governor of invoking the Taylor Law against those people. Isn't it strange how the teachers somehow have this protected status? Those we depend on to keep us safe, those who we run to when we're the victims of crime, those who run towards gunfire when everybody else is running away, those who run into burning buildings while everyone else is running out, those people would have the tale of law invoked on them. But a bunch of privileged people who work 181 days out of the year while the rest of the municipal workers make 240 appearances a year, those people who get off every major holiday, those people who get the entire summer off and live the life of Riley, those people who don't even work an eight-hour day when they go to work, they don't get the tale of law invoked against them. If that sounds crooked to you, it's because it is. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury.